everyone. This is Maxine Ryan with Prosper Podcast, and today's special guest is Yannick Maling, who is the co-founder and CEO of Public. Yannick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Maxine. It's good to see you again. Good to see you again, too. Um, so for those who don't know, can you give a bit of a background into um, everything before Public? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, if I go all the way back to the beginning, um, uh, I grew up in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, and uh, honestly, I think sort of got into web development and design at a super young age, just basically because I played too much Counter-Strike when I was a kid. Um, and uh, that sort of skill set, building that early on, um, landed me a gig at a company called Saxo Bank, uh, which is one of the first um, sort of online banks in Europe, kind of like the European E-Trade, I guess. And um, and that kind of kickstarts off. I started there when I was 17 years old, which was like um, a pretty cool experience. Left in, in 2007 together with uh, a few other folks to build another company um, that started off a little shaky. I think one of our first LPs was literally Lehman Brothers. So I guess most people knew, knew what happened there, but we did manage to build a group of companies on the back of that. So one was like a an API-based credit facilitation marketplace between the big banks of London and smaller medium-sized financial institutions around Europe. Another one was a, a SaaS business. And then there was a, a development platform called Tradable that I sort of incubated and founded within the group and ran, which was um, a platform that gave third-party developers the ability to build software for banks and brokerages around the world through like a, a single point of, of, of distribution. Um, and, uh, that was fun that, that took, I guess, eight years of my life. And then in, um, in 2016, there was an exit and then I, uh, I hit it stateside. Um, and it's funny as as a European who had worked in and around finance for, you know, a little over a decade at the time, I, uh, I always just assumed that everyone uh, was taken advantage of what I think is one of the greatest asset classes of all time, or the greatest, arguably, which is you know the S and P five hundred. Um, but to my surprise, that just wasn't the case, and you know that sort of became the the start of public, I guess. Yeah, I can't wait to get more into that. And you know, when I look more into public's ethos, I know one of the biggest things is that you guys have this big goal to make the stock market open to everybody by changing the underlying culture. What do you think was different about the culture back then compared to what public is doing now? Yeah, I think the culture that had always existed around the markets uh, had become very white male dominated, short-term focused kind of day trading culture, right? Like Wolf of Wall Street memes. And um, and it was it was a little bit closer often to, to gambling culture than, than real investing culture. Um, and, you know, for, for some people that's exhilarating, it can be a lot of fun, but for others, it sort of from the outside looking in it, it makes it seem um like not the most inviting culture and so a lot of people think it's it's not for them um which is sort of ironic because they're called the public markets for a reason right they are literally designed for the public um and that's sort of the the irony in our name is trying to bring it back to like hey the market was actually always intended to be for all people and so realizing that sort of the 
the the 10% richest people in America owned 85 to 90% of all the securities um, seemed a little um, a little bit like we, we we had gotten off track. Um, and, you know, I think we've always said that the main reason people have invested wasn't necessarily commission of fees, it's it's approachability, right? Feeling like the market is for you as much as it's accessibility. Um, and that's why that's why we just set out to kind of change the culture that existed around the stock market uh, very early on. So on public today, it's uh, 40% women on the app. It's 45% are people of color. 90% are first-time investors. Um, 90% are also longer-term investors. So it's not it's not a place to go to speculate. It's much more a place to actually go and converse with other investors, have sort of these social interactions that lead to deeper insights in and around companies. Um, but then it's also a place uh, where you can actually execute and, and uh, trades and, and build your portfolio, right? So we, um, when we launched in September of 2019, we pioneered this concept of real-time fractional um, investing, which I still think is a very underappreciated sort of game changer for the industry because I think it really leveled the playing field much more than people realize prior to the world of fractional you were left with if you didn't have a lot of money in your account you were left with you know speculating on penny stocks um or potentially even trying to get a margin loan to just afford one share of amazon or something like that um and with fractional everyday investors can use the same strategies that wealthy investors have used forever which is diversification dollar cost averaging so I really think we'll look back at fractional um, as being, you know, 20 years from now, we'll look back at that as being like the great, the great unlock for, for other people to be able to participate. Yeah, I think that's definitely an interesting point where I guess fractional investing kind of democratized investing for the retail investor. And prior to that, they would probably have to have quite a lot of money before they even considered investing in the stock market. Do you think how do I phrase this? It's like, um, we know that, you know, fractional investing is nothing new. It's been around now. We know that it works for a lot of people. Um, but there's something different that public's doing. And can we go into like what the difference is? Because fractional investing has been around for a while now. It was, I guess, like one of the biggest innovations in, um, in investing itself, where it opens up the market completely. Why do you think that you have these groups of people who previously didn't invest investing now? Well, I think it's interesting because I still think we're the first brokerage that was actually born fractional. So I think other places, um, like when we looked around the industry back in the beginning of 2018, like 19, nobody really had it, right? And so... Um, there was some stuff where it was like, obviously you had the concept of ETFs, which has some fractionalizing kind of in there. But as far as like re real time self-directed fractional investing, um, nobody, nobody really built that. So, um, so we, we kind of built it and launched it, but we were also coming from the angle of being a, a social app. Um, we saw how, and we were actually kind of running a beta where we didn't have fractional, but we had some of the social dynamics and we could just see how all the benefits from social were kind of like held back by not having fractional, right? Because it's a little bit like you're having a conversation with other investors. 
around security that you can't afford just because the price per share is high, which really just comes back to, you know, something as arbitrary as like whether the company has decided to do a stock split or how much, how many outstanding shares they have. And so it just, it felt unfair. Right. And, and, and then with the, with the addition of fractional, um, we really just saw the, the community uh, pick up pace um, because I think a lot of, there's definitely been a lot of appetite for people to get it, to get educated. Um, and then now they could sort of become educated and actually, you know, apply that education all within the same experience. And that's, that's, I guess the, the combination that, that nobody's um, had at the time and still to this day, don't, don't really have as, as far as we were. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely made all the difference because I think when I talk to anybody who's a new investor, they the number one comment is that it's just very daunting and they don't really know where to start. And I think that if you're on an app totally. where there are other people on there that are in the same place as you, um, but it's like a shared experience, it just makes it much easier. Um, and it kind of makes it more of like a pleasant experience in an otherwise like it feels high risk, right? Um, but I really love that public is focusing on long-term investing because um, you know that really is kind of where people should be focused on. It's not these like huge um, ups and downs, um, which I think right. like in the, I guess like Wall Street bros culture is like the most <clears throat> popular thing, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, you, you mentioned a stat before, which was that um, out of public's community of like 1 million investors, 40% of public's investors are women and 45% are people of color. When I heard this, I was really surprised because I think my previous understanding of the stock market was that it was for a certain type of person. And there was this huge gap between, I guess, um, those who are minorities in investing and um, those who aren't. So why do you think there is this investment gap and how is public working to close it? I think it comes back to the culture piece. Um, and, you know, what if you 10 years ago, um, say, as a woman wanting to invest, most of the communities that you would seek out would be male dominated, right? They would have this kind of a little bit day trader kind of vibe. And, uh, and I think that's, that, that's not what you're looking for if you're looking to really invest. I think there's a big distinction between day trading and speculation and then real investing where you're focusing more on ownership. You have a much more longer term perspective on things. And so I think, uh, I think that's sort of been, been the main thing, to be honest, um, because I think to your point, you said that it, it feels less risky and i think it feels less risky because you're building your sort of knowledge base right when you're doing it together with other people it's funny i i think there's this concept of learning by doing that um most people will be familiar with and i think one of the things that we've really seen as um, learning by doing on the one hand is studies have shown i believe it's the best way to kind of learn something right then on the other um learning by doing means you typically make mistakes in the beginning, right? If you're learning by doing as an engineer, you know, the, the first kind of couple of uh, lines of code you'll write won't be your best, right? Um, and so normally or in other disciplines, those mistakes are not that costly, but historically speaking, again, before the invention of fractional shares, learning by doing was very, very expensive, mm -hmm. right? Now you can learn by doing with, 
$50, right? Or 10 even. And so we focused on dramatically lowering the, the cost of learning by doing. And also then, um, so that's kind of one side. Then the second thing is when you then put people into a community and it's more sort of a multiplayer learning by doing, you're not just learning from your own experiences because it can be kind of scary sitting there just with your charts and numbers alone. So on public, you know, you open the app, you see people, you see their sort of anecdotes, you see why they're making investments, you can engage in conversation. And so you're learning from everyone else's um, experiences as well. And that it's dramatically- like it's compounding. It's compounding much faster because it, it accelerates your learnings, which then compounds over time, right? So it's really, it's really about compounding your portfolio and the market, which you can, I mean, we believe that there's no reason why anyone who's turned 18 can't actually start investing, right? Like people shouldn't start when they're in their late thirties, they should start as soon as they're legally able to, even if they start with 10 bucks and then they go from there, right? Um, because of compounding and the same goes for building your kind of financial literacy, you should start early because then you can compound it over time. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great point. And um, I think something that you mentioned was about kind of the risk management and the difference between um, the risk of having a high threshold of investment versus a risk of having a low threshold of investment, which is what we see now. Um, you know, how does, investing still has a certain amount of risk involved. How does public kind of ensure, I guess, the protection for their retail investors? Because there is this like narrative, I guess, that um, retail investors are the ones that are most exposed to the markets. They're always the ones left holding the bag. I personally don't believe in that. And I think that retails and retail investors have been um, very much, I guess, undervalued um, and underestimated. But I, I guess this question does come up, like how uh, they're just retail investors. How are they going to be managing the markets against you know, hedge funds and yeah. these types of things? Yeah, it's a good question. I. To your point, we also think it's more nuanced than that. And uh, just making the generalization that retail investors, quote unquote, that sort of, you tend to forget in theory, like 150 million people plus are eligible to become, like you know, so, um, so like with any question where generalization won't really get you uh, very far, we kind of try to zoom in and look at it a little bit more nuanced. So um, we think there are a lot of people that are new to the markets that just know less than other people, at least yet. And so we've developed a set of features um, that, that sort of help um, ensure that we do whatever we can to present information in context when it's relevant. So one of those is called safety labels, where we actually go and look at the SEC guidelines even for what they deem to be a risky security, which, you know, most people don't have their web browser open on the SEC's web uh, website um, as the homepage. And so, um, so we bring that information forward and we kind of tag the stock. And then when you try to invest in it, we sort of show you very explicitly that the SEC actually deems this to be risky. And then you can click through to learn more things, or you can sort of, swipe through. And so that goes for, you know, um, companies that have kind of lower market cap that have more volatility, et cetera. Um, and that's, that's kind of one example. Another one is a feature we launched uh, just a few months ago um, called why is it moving? So it's kind of like a contextual card that pops up on the 
stocks that are moving the most where you get a little snippet of information, just a little caption showing you kind of giving you some into some insight into why this is moving, right? So you kind of start to build context and it, it kind of serves as sort of in context education at the time of action. Um, and we found that to be incredibly helpful for most people to really kind of think through the actions they take on the app. And so that's sort of on the tactical level. I think generally speaking, again, we um, when you have sort of a culture that very much in the community that very much centers around long-term investing, it, it helps reinforce itself all the time. So um, in the early days, it was actually a little bit sort of harder, but now the community is is more than a million members. And so if you come in as someone and you you see what other people are doing, your sort of behavior um, will, in most cases, like adopt the culture that that's already there. And uh, and in our case, that that just means that, you know, a lot of the content you see on the app, the vast majority, in fact, really talk about you know, how you diversify and what's dollar cost averaging and, and when are people dollar cost averaging and, and why. And, and again, a lot of those things that you get exposed to from a content perspective really go back to that same ethos. Yeah, that's great. And, um, you know, markets are at an all time high. And I feel like when this happens, there is a divorce between um, the fundamentals of a company and the narrative of the company. So, um, a third thing that I'm seeing happening in the market, especially with, I guess, uh, retail investors that are less about speculation, um, is that they're really looking at the values that a company has. So it's no longer just about the narrative of the fundamentals, but it's also what that company stands for. Um, why do you think that this social values approach has emerged for the retail investor? Yeah, it's interesting. There's a term... Um... I'm not sure if he coined it, but he certainly talked about it. Scott Galloway calls the story stocks and, yeah. and they are these more narratively kind of driven companies. Um, I think historically speaking, in a time where institutional volume makes up the majority of the, of the volume in the stock market, the markets will naturally gravitate more and more towards fundamentals because institutional investors are very literate around fundamentals. They have historic benchmarks, they have ratings where they'd like to see things. There are models, there are algorithms. And I think what you've seen happen in the last couple of years is a massive influx of retail investors who are not as literate around those fundamentals. And even when they then build literacy around them, they don't necessarily agree with the price targets, right? And by the way, many institutional kind of investors and rating indices, what their price targets are not perfect either, right? And so it becomes a little bit of like, you know, um, you don't really know which is the best kind of approach, right? And, and kind of time will tell because I think retail investors also come at things typically looking at more leading indicators, right? Institutional investors, look at the earnings calls and sort of stocks tends to move the most right after an earnings call. Many retail investors look at much more leading indicators because they're also consumers of the products made by those companies. Right. And so they basically, um, they have a little bit more of a, of, of a leading kind of view in, into the stock. And, and that can go to, I mean, good anecdote is when Airbnb IPO, you know, we had certain creators on the app that were breaking down the S1 filings and, the fundamentals and all that stuff, but you also had people that are super hosts uh, in different cities around the U.S. kind of talking about their experiences, whatever. And so it's like you have people on the demand side of the marketplace. And so 
it becomes a much more like 360 degree view of the company rather than just the spreadsheet stuff. And I think that's really what's helping drive um, some of this kind of values driven behavior that we're seeing. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, so I guess, you know, retail investors are uh, leading education by sharing their experience with investing. And I like to say that um, a lot of the times, like retail investors sh sharing their opinions, it's just an opinion. It's not exactly financial advice. Um, right. But with that, it does kind of inspire action. And we do see like these huge movements in the market that seem to be from, you know, maybe like a narrative that's just taken off. So for example, GameStop, and there's a lot of criticism around, um, again, these like generalized, generalized um, ideas, but, you know, while it isn't financial advice, it does inspire action. Um, and, you know, besides from the safety level, uh, safety labels, how does public ensure their communities is protected, I guess, more on a regulation standpoint? Well, I think uh, a couple of aspects, right? I think the, the key thing for us still really comes down to the culture that you're building. And one of the things that's a little bit unique to us versus other, other kind of platforms is uh, we're a regulated broker dealer across the US, but we're also a full stack social network which means that in order to participate in the community on public, you actually have to have your identity verified. And so arguably, maybe at this point, we're running the most verified uh, social network in the history of social networks, which in and of itself is an interesting experience because um, it, uh, first of all, it just lifts the bar dramatically. I think a lot of the pump and dump action you've seen historically even in the last decade um, around the web has been like on anonymous kind of forums in and around the internet where you just have a username and a password and you're just putting out messages, right? Um, we don't see that kind of behavior on public because it's everyone has had their identity verified, their social security, their address, et cetera, in order to open the brokerage account as well, obviously. And so, so these are all real investors um, that are all sort of verified and so for that reason it just like lifts the bar dramatically and then again you can actually click through and see what people hold right in their portfolios which is nice because it allows everyone to to um to sort of know exactly where where people stand and that again has just helped create this this vibe in the community where it's much more collaborative than competitive right it's it's really not and and that's I think what differentiates us from other kind of social takes in and around um, trading historically. Um, and I think the the coolest thing we've seen is that when when the whole GameStop incident happened and a lot of people were were coming through the door as as new customers, um, there were some people from you know Reddit and and including the the, the Wall Street Bets forum and whatnot. Um, but because there was already a set culture in the community, um, any sort of additional member that joined sort of conformed to that culture versus yeah. trying to kind of break it up. And there was already like a critical mass because we'd grown tremendously through the, throughout the year of 2020. Um, and it was really interesting to see that like the average user would come in and might, they might sort of just have a profile picture on, 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 on Reddit, say that where they're a cartoon or a username with some swear words in there or whatnot. <laughs> and, and on public, it's a real picture, right? They're sitting there with their dog or their significant other. They have a real name. And then there might be some, some, some diamonds and some emojis uh, and, and some rocket emojis in the bio. 
um, but they're real people. And so they're showing off the much more human side of them, which leads to just much more human conversation, um, which makes the whole thing much more constructive overall. Yeah, I feel like um, the culture on public is very much like we're all in this together, like let's all help each other. Whereas totally. I think on probably some of these, I guess like um, accounts where you can be anonymous, there's, it's like, it just breed, it's a breeding ground for, you know, vibes that are not that great. <laughs> but exactly. essentially, um, you know, public made the landmark move of ending payment for order flow, um, a practice that many zero commission trading companies use. Um, I think a lot of people are like, wow, this is great, but they might not understand what PFOF is. Um, can you go into what exactly it is and then why it's important that public remove this? Yep. So payment for order flow or PFOF uh, for short is a practice by which brokerages get compensated from routing the customer's orders, um, not to the stock exchange, um, but actually to market makers. And um, it probably goes a little bit contra to how most people think the stock market works, because I think you sort of think that whenever you, you know, you invest in something, you know, the, the, the order gets routed to the stock exchange, but that actually rarely happens. And so um, we ended our participation in PFOF, um, yeah, a couple of months ago at this point, I think, and are now routing all uh, orders directly to uh, stock exchanges. And I think the, the reason this was important to us is um, number one, transparency, right? So um, other brokerages get compensated from market makers by routing the orders there. And so it has led to some confusion is how in, in like, you know, there's this notion of like, you know, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product kind of thing. And, um, you know, payment for order flow as a company, if, if that's the revenue stream you're really banking on, um, you will sort of end up building things that we think goes against the incentive of your users because you want them to trade a lot. You want them to take bigger positions, more risk. There are things like options trading that is five times more profitable um, than this regular equities investment. And, um, you know, that's not really what public is about. It didn't match with our ethos. And so we, we basically uh, decided to um, disband in payment for order flow from market regulators, route all orders directly to exchanges and then instead we launched this uh this tipping model which is the ability to um which is optional as implied by the word tipping but basically whenever you make a an investment or or you sell something then you can tip public um but you also choose not to and um i think it was very well received by by the community and i think the industry at large if i'm being honest because i think it was sort of a situation where um you were missing some transparency and and just like being being upfront with users about how we make money and and bringing them into it in a little bit more of a direct way has actually been very kind of been beneficial and ultimately with that model instead of public being beholden to third party market makers we're just entirely beholden on our customers which also means that if we have goodwill with our customers we'll make more money. And if we don't, then we probably won't make more money, but then, you know, we got to change that because then, then we'd have work to do. And so it, I think it keeps us sharper. It keeps us a little bit cleaner, arguably, and, and, and 
that's that's basically why we we made that decision. Yeah, I think it was definitely an interesting approach just because historically this was, I guess, like a status quo of your industry. Um, and I think that it's great that, you know, companies like yours are kind of saying, actually, there's a different way and there's a different approach to that. Um, I'm pretty sure the, you know, your public users are really happy with the fact that you're working more directly with them. Um, yeah, I think it became, it's a little bit of a, I mean, it, it sounds cliche sometimes, but it was a sort of a moment of first principles thinking for us where you really just go, I mean, so much stuff happened around that time with, with, with the whole Jimmy episode, but um, yeah, it's really just going back and re-examining the underlying assumptions that everybody just took for granted. Right. Um, and that basically led to this. And I think we're, we're very happy that we, that we did it. That's great. Um, so with that, what other practices do you see will fade and emerge in the retail investing space? Because I'm pretty sure this won't be the last thing. Right. Um, I mean, look, I think there will be a number of things. Um, I think there's a whole conversation in and around the, the national best bet and offer sort of in the deeper market structures, how that's priced. You know, it doesn't take into account uh, things like fractional order volume and odd lot volume. And so um, so there's probably a, a little bit of work to do to bring that back up to speed because the, the industry has just evolved so quickly in, in, in such a little time. You know, I, I truthfully believe the, the, the markets have evolved more in the last two years than they have in the last two decades, right? And whenever you see acceleration like that, you gotta, you gotta probably re, re-examine a bunch of things. I think in terms of, uh, you know, sort of user behavior, if you will, and how people think about the stock market. I think you've seen now, you've had this moment where the stock market really sort of um, came into pop culture. And it's been awesome to see that going from when we started this company, most people were kind of scared of the markets. Um, and now it's becoming, and it's not totally mainstream yet, but in, 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 in more and more and larger circles, it then became this like pop cultural moment that's great. I think what's still missing is the educational piece, right? So what we've seen after the massive influx of, of new users from, from the GameStop incident is, of course, a lot of people came in and they bought GameStop as their first stock, right? Um, our concern at the time, I think, was, oh, are they just going to come in for like that one trade and then, and then leave? Because that's not investing, right? That's yeah. just basically you know, having your go at the, at the roulette table, if you will. And I think, um, fortunately for us, we haven't actually seen that overwhelmingly the opposite has been true where people have initially bought GME, but then, and you, you can see this in the portfolio if you click around because, um, most people's portfolios are, are actually public. Um, and you can kind of see in their record that they start with GME, but then they bought a bunch of other things and not just the other meme stocks too, but like high quality companies, Apple, Amazon, ETFs even. And so I think that is that comes back to when you sort of take somebody that's new to the markets and you drop them in a community where they're just like, they're getting, they're seeing content, they're seeing other people do things, they can engage with other people. There's a very friendly sort of tone and vibe and it's a very inviting culture and regardless of their gender or background, they also see themselves represented in that versus dropping them in like a single player app experience where it's just you and your chats and numbers. Like that's a little <laughs> yeah. bit, that's a, that, that, that's a world of difference. Um, and so to answer your question, I think 
right now it's been buy a stock or even buy a coin in the in the crypto world. And I think as people become a little bit more mature, um, especially in public, where we see people going from zero to very high degrees of financial literacy in a very short amount of time, um, and they become knowledgeable, it's going to be more about building your portfolio or like what's in your portfolio. Because I think you look at most sort of billionaire investors and hedge fund managers, they tend to have, call it 10 or 15 positions um, that give them exposure to different trends, industries, or sectors. Um, and everybody can do that now, even with the $100 kind of portfolio, right? And so I think that's that's what it's going to be much more about going forward. It's going to evolve from just like buy that one meme stock to actually build out your portfolio with the things that you believe in them, have a real thesis, you know, write it down, which you kind of do in public in the caption um, and and continue to re-examine it and, and continue to, to learn as you do that. Yeah, that's great. Um, so to date, Public is now worth $1.2 billion and has raised $310 million from prominent VCs and investors such as Excel, Graycroft, uh, Will Smith, JJ Watt, and more. By the way, when I met you five years ago, it was like, I would have never thought this. I mean, like, if there was anybody, it was going to be you, but well done. Um, but what- I'm not sure how to take that, by the way. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> But, um, you know, what should your users expect from public in the next five years? Um, yeah, I mean, hey, first of all, I think we've been we've been super fortunate that more than a million people um, have wanted to join our community. And um, that's that's been fantastic. Um, obviously, there's still a lot more work to do. Uh, and, you know, even when we talk about the the gender ratio, right? That's still not good enough. It's remarkably better than the industry average. Um, but that just shows you how big the problem has been historically because it's it's still not, um, it, it, there's still some, some room for improvement there. Um, right now, I mean, everybody's just been heads down. We've been growing the team really quickly. We're a little over a hundred people now. Um, we're hard at work at a lot of new features, including Crypto, which I think you'll, I know you'll. <laughs> which ones? <laughs> I know you'll like that. I mean, so obviously we're starting, we're starting kind of from the top down, right? We're doing Bitcoin, we're doing Ether, and then we're sort of adding, you know, starting maybe with the top three or five, I think. And then, and then, and then we'll see, then, then we'll go from there. Quite honestly, I do feel like there's a lot of things that are, there, there's some that you kind of know now, you know, a little bit more mature. And then there's some that pop up here and there. And, and I think we're a little bit more, more iffy on those. And, you know, I don't know that we aspire to always be the first place to add every coin. That's not what this is about. It's really more about, you know, we do believe that crypto, generally speaking, has a place in the modern portfolio. That's the sentiment that we get from a community at least. And, and um, you know, with that, that's mostly obviously kind of Bitcoin and Ether. And then as you go down, kind of the, the market cap ladder. Um, so that's kind of one thing. That's a little bit more on the investing side. And we sort of actually have two roadmaps. Um, we have an investing roadmap, but we also have a social roadmap. And the social roadmap is really more about sort of the, the content that people can get on the app. So we just had our first uh, town hall, which is a new feature that we launched just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, which is a way for retail investors to ask questions directly to CEOs and leaders of public companies. And our thinking there was really that like, you know, you have this thing called earnings calls, which is mostly for institutional investors, bankers, analysts to kind of call in. 
and ask questions. And uh, there's never really been an outlet or an opportunity for retail investors to ask questions to the CEOs of public companies. So town halls is kind of like our version of AMAs a little bit where you have the opportunity to actually ask questions to the leaders of public companies. We did one with um, Shai from Lemonade, Shai Winninger, who's, who, who's the president there. Uh, it went phenomenal. It got uh, more than 1.5 million views, a bunch of questions, almost 40 questions kind of answered. What was really cool to see is that the questions, I, I personally think, were much better than, than, than those you see on earnings calls quite often, right? Like it was, there was one about like, what do you look for in your hiring process? Like, again, more fundamental stuff versus what do you think you need to get the price earnings ratio up another couple of points, right? And like, that was super interesting. So we're doing one with... Um, with Whitney from Bumble next and, and have an, a number of people lined up that that will be um, uh, just as uh, just as exciting, we think. That's so exciting. Um, and I guess like one question I want to ask you was, what was your first trade? So uh, truth be told, my first trade, um, at least when I when I, I'll, I'll tell you when I came to the US, so, because otherwise it's a bunch of Danish companies you never heard about, right? So, um, when I first came to the US, I kid you not, I I went into my bank, I set up the account, you know, I did the whole thing. And then I emailed um, my banker, I would like to build this portfolio. And I remember, and this was like before anybody had even thought about fractional shares or whatnot. And the way I put it in the email was like, Netflix you know, a thousand dollars, let's say, right? Disney, this, you know, Amazon, that. And so my first trade was actually a basket of trades of like 15, 20 trades. Prior to that, I had researched by calling most of my friends that sort of were in the US and in New York and like gathering notes and what they thought. So there was actually elements of social in there as well. And then I sort of emailed it, but it was so much easier to think about your portfolio because when you just start one stock after the other, it makes it really hard to control your diversification over time, right? When you start with a portfolio strategy and you're like, you do some research, you figure out these are the companies I want to invest in. These are sort of the, the sectors that I believe will grow in the future. These are the companies I believe to be market leaders in those. You know, there was Tesla in there and others. And... Uh, and then you just like weigh it in your minds with dollars, right? Not in shares and multiplying by the share price and then ending up at some amount and not really being able to control the diversification. And, uh, and that was kind of a, a moment where I also thought like, wow, I believe that was like a great way to invest, but that was a very cumbersome process that I had to go through both from like sort of pooling some social insights from friends, having dialogue across different chat and email and calls and whatnot, to then actually executing it in this way where I literally was emailing somebody <laughs> and then with the dollar amounts. And I remember him emailing me back because they didn't have fractional shares. It's like, oh, I bought this many shares at this price. So like, I also ended up with these uneven amounts. <laughs> like I wanted a thousand bucks. I got 997 point something and it's just like that bothered my kind of design besides <laughs> like oh, all these uneven amounts like your eyes just twitching <laughs> and I was like what like I couldn't I couldn't but it was actually hard to see whether that matched up sort of the the request that I put in, in the first place um so yeah the next time somebody finds their way into the markets for the first time like that hopefully uh 
it's a little bit easier. Wonderful. And I guess just to round it off, uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with the public team? Uh, by far, obviously joining uh, the app. Uh, it's, it's only available to US, uh, US people right now, but you know, join the app, follow me in the app. Um, my username is at Yannick, J-A-N-N-I-C-K. Uh, you can also go to public.com slash Yannick, J-A-N-N-I-C-K and just see my portfolio, even if you're not from the US. Um, otherwise, uh, I guess we're most active on Twitter. Uh, we have the at public handle. Um, so that should be pretty easy. And we're always excited to hear from people, um, existing members or prospective members. Um, and we have a, we have an active dialogue uh, with folks there as well. So. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Prosper Podcast. Awesome. Yeah. It's good to see you again. <laughs>